Why don't we open our Bible to 1 Peter, and just as you're doing that, I'll take a moment to introduce myself. If you're new here, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen, and as I say week after week after week, it's my privilege to be able to share scripture with you this morning, and uh, I hope hope you're uh, comfy in your seat, uh, because we're going to talk today about a lot of historical context. There's going to be a whole bunch of teaching about first century culture and the Roman Greco culture uh, that this text specifically is rooted in. So over the past uh, few weeks, we've been working through what some see as a difficult section in Peter's first letter to the churches in Asia Minor. Because starting in the second chapter, he began to give instructions on how Christian households should function within a culture that is oppressive toward this new Christian movement. So remember that context. This is first century Christianity. This is a new Christian movement. Some see it as an extension of Judaism. Their Messiah has come. But in this context, he's talking mostly to Gentiles. And so uh, it is a new movement to many of them. And it's important that we don't forget the context. You're going to hear that. I mean, my, my doctorate is in contextual theology, and so uh, I'm, a, I'm a context guy. I like uh, to put things into the proper context as well as our current context, because that's part of what contextual theology actually is, is how do we take this difficult theological thing and move it into our culture today? That's what contextual theology is, and in order to grab that context, you got to know what he's saying to these first century Christians, and more importantly, why it is that he is saying it. So it's important that we don't forget the context, and so I want to remind you this morning of some of the context that we've gone over so far in Peter's letter. Now, many of the churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, are being persecuted specifically by the emperor of Rome named Nero, who makes any other cultural leader look like a really good guy. Nero is the worst of the worst. He he is the worst emperor to have ever existed. He literally burnt down Rome so that he could rebuild it in his image. So you you see a little bit of, of like he's thinking he's a pretty important guy. Now, essentially... The church at the time is trying to survive persecution because they've been called to live differently than the Roman world around them. And this call to live differently rubs the culture wrong and threatens those who don't believe. And so Peter is writing in this context to encourage them and give them instructions on how to navigate such an oppressive society as a believer and more specifically corporately as the church. This is the context in which Peter navigates some of these difficult, now I want you to hear me, difficult first century issues. Difficult first century issues. So, so far, Peter has stressed that all Christians must find their identity in the hope that they found in Jesus. And this theme undergirds, which is a fancy word for kind of the overarching theme. It's what's sort of beneath the whole structure of this letter. It's what undergirds his letter. 
is about our identity and the hope that we've found in Christ. And we're going to see that saturated in today's passage as well. And then Peter establishes that when you find your true identity and worth in Christ, the way you live begins to change. And he calls us, or these Christians, to live their lives as set apart, or some of us will use the word holy, from the culture around them. However, navigating living within the culture, but living counterculturally, is actually incredibly tricky. And so Peter launches into his teaching on household codes, how a Christian household should function from chapter 2, starting at verse 13, all the way through to the end of verse, chapter 3, verse 7 today. That's what he's been dealing with. And these two verses before his household code, the, the two verses before the household code teaching, code, what did I say? Code teaching sets the stage actually for how he's going to instruct them. So we got to walk backwards a little bit in the scriptures to be reminded of what Peter is tracking with. Remember, the early church never read this letter in chunks like we do. They didn't quote verses and chapters. They read, they stood up and they read this letter from start to finish. And so the reason I'm constantly reminding you and taking you back verses is because we lose the context as we read it in chunks. So here is the passage that he is playing off of, so to speak, which is what launches us into the household codes. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, if you remember, he says this, Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, so there's that identity piece, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Be careful, he says, to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. He told us what the overarching issue of what he's dealing with in this entire letter actually is in that passage. It's the issue of being accused of doing wrong that has gotten these Christians in hot water with the Roman pagan culture around them. So Peter says, how you live determines your witness within that culture. What I mean by witness, if you didn't grow up in the church, you're like, witness, what do you mean? Like, I'm witnessing a crime? No, your witness is your ability to show Christ to others through how you live. And so he says, how you live will determine that ability within this culture. Now, I, I want you to notice something here. And maybe, maybe you've caught it already in all of the different teachings, and maybe you haven't. But have you noticed that Peter's, what Peter's main objective is here in his letter? So we've pushed the identity thing, but there's, there's more that's driving why he's pressing into the identity piece. 
You see, the thing that Peter seems the most concerned about, especially in chapters 2 and chapters 3, is based on how Christian behavior affects Christian witness. That's what's driving it. How are you, as a Christian, going to affect the world around you and how you behave means a lot to Peter. And especially chapters 2 and 3. It's based on how Christian behavior affects our witness or our ability to witness. Now, Peter directly links how this community of believers interacts with the culture around it and how this behavior influences people to see and know Christ or to not. They had a choice. The Christian community had a choice. They could blend into the culture and reach no one with the gospel, or they could live set apart so drastically that the culture hates them and persecutes them. Do you see the dynamic here? You could blend in and just not be very Christian, or you could be so darn Christian that everybody hates your guts. And what Peter's actually saying is, neither of those. He's saying, follow what I'm about to advise you to do on how to live, because that will teach you how to witness. And so Peter advises them, listen to me. He advises them to uphold some of the societal norms of first century Roman pagan culture. Uphold some of it. Uphold some of the societal norms for the purpose of the church's witness in society. This means that they'll have to live in the culture and follow certain aspects of the culture around them, but do it differently. Do it with a posture of respect. Do it with a posture of respect. Folks, our posture in how we do things is crucial. And the posture of we're right, you're wrong, gets you persecuted, gets you ignored, eliminates your witness. But the culture of just blending and being like the rest of the world, but then claiming Christ also gets you ignored and ruins your witness. And so there's this balance that we have to create with a posture of respect. This is the theme that he's been following. Respect those in authority, he said. Even if you don't agree with them. We love that, don't we? You see, if our culture is all about being right, then anybody that disagrees with us is wrong. And so we align ourselves with people who agree with us, and we lose our witness. He says, those with masters, respect your masters. Be the best possible slave worker that you can be. Not because you endorse slavery, but because it's the norm in culture. And how you behave as a slave represents your faith in Christ. Now, remember I said, if the church would have abolished slavery at this time, it would have sent the entire economy crashing. Can you imagine what kind of witness you are if you just ruined the entire economy? Is anybody going to listen to you? So he says, 
fall into this cultural norm, live within it, but behave as a slave that represents your faith in Christ. And so he addresses how a slave works with their masters, even when their masters are not great people. And so Peter says, instead of claiming freedom because of Jesus, that's what they had, freedom in Christ that changed everything for them, become the hardest working, most respectful slave on staff. Represent Christ in a way that society can't find fault in you. So rather than being so countercultural that you say, I don't have to be a slave anymore because I'm free in Christ, he actually says, no, continue being a slave, but do it as Christ would. Now, as we've studied Peter's letter, we have to dig a lot into understanding the culture in the first century Greco-Roman world. This is one of the mistakes that we make when we work with scripture. There's tons of resources for you to do it. You don't have to do all the seminary and and studies that, that myself or other people have done in order to do it. You can just buy like the NIV uh, um, historical Bible where verse by verse walks you through and tells you all the historical content right there, except you got to be willing to read it. There's a guy named Craig Keener. He was uh, actually one of our keynote speakers at our study conference this year. He's the, the weird dude that I told you about a, a couple months ago that puts Vaseline on his eyebrows. Craig Keener wrote two books, both this thick, that go verse by verse through all of scripture, giving you the cultural context of what's happening. So all the resources are there, but we're going to take 40 minutes today to unpack what's actually happening here in this text. And so in today's passage especially, it's one of the most misused passages in the church, we have to first understand why Peter even feels the need to address how wives and husbands interact. You ever wondered that? Why is this in scripture at all? If it's so obvious in the Genesis account, why does Peter have to address it? Why does Paul have to address it? Here's the thing. There's something going on in the text. And our context will help us with that. So let's read the passage first. We'll read it all the way through, and I'll start to give you some historical background, and it might help bring some light into this awesome passage of Scripture. And we're going we're gonna to lead off with, uh, with a great statement. In the same way, that connects it with the passages before, so slaves submitting, people submitting to authority. He says, in the same way, you wives, you wives, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Now, some of your translations say must submit, right? How many men have said, the Bible says, honey, You must submit to me that I'm the man of the household. I'm the authority. I'm the authority figure. If we go all the way back to Genesis, it says that I was made first. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Now listen very carefully to the text. Then, even if some, meaning husbands, Refuse to obey the good news. Ah, it gives us something there. 
Your godly lives will speak to them without any words. It's about witness. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about outward beauty or fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry or beautiful clothes. How many people spent an hour getting ready for church this morning? Don't raise your hand. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unique, sorry, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of the old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husband might do. Now, verse 7 makes a distinct shift, and I'll explain that shift a little later. But he then says, in the same way, that's interesting. He's talking about submitting, and now he says, in the same way, You husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, firstly, the phrase, in the same way links the concept above with the verses above. That's important to understand. He's not shifting in his thought pattern here. And Peter has just challenged his readers to uphold societal norms for the sake of their witness. Respect authority. Be the best slave you can be while respecting your master, even if he's difficult. And most importantly, leave your case in the hands of God, because he is the only one who judges fairly. That's verse 23 above. Leave your case to God, because he is the only one who judges fairly. All, of these, all these principles apply to how wives should live with their husbands. But notice, the passage says that these husbands are refusing to obey the good news. Did you catch that? In other words, the context here, what Peter is dealing with in the first six verses, is writing to address wives who have become Christians with husbands who are not. Listen to what Craig Keener says regarding this verse. So I'll give you a little taste of what his IVP background Bible commentary says, just about verse 1. He says, in the same way, refers back to the passage on slaves. I'm glad he agrees with me. It's wonderful. Like Judaism and other non-Roman religions, Christianity spread faster among wives than husbands. Husbands had more to lose socially from conversion to an unpopular minority religion, which would be Christianity at this time. But wives were expected to obey their husbands. Now, listen. Wives were expected to obey their husbands 
in Greco-Roman antiquity. It's a Greco-Roman pagan cultural thing. And this obedience included allegiance to their husband's religions, cults that forbade their participation in Roman religious rites, including prohibiting worship of a family's household gods, small g. We're talking pagan here. We're viewed as disdain and Jewish or Christian women who refused to worship these gods, the ones their husband would worship, could be charged, listen to this, with atheism. Did you know that the early Christians were considered atheists? Because they're in a pagan culture. And the Christians are denying those gods, and they saw that as atheism. And so this transition that a wife is making is considered moving into being an atheist. He says, thus by advice, Peter, listen to what he says. Peter seeks to reduce marital tensions and causes of hostility toward Christianity and Christians. Silence was considered a great virtue for women in antiquity. You see, in the first six verses, Peter is addressing wives who have husbands who have not accepted the Christian religion as their own. Peter wants to help with this tension because culturally it was a huge tension. That's his motive of writing about this. Now, it's important to understand. Now, please don't get angry at me. I'm just giving you Greco-Roman culture. It's important to understand that women in Greco-Roman culture had no rights. That's who Peter's writing to right now. That's what Craig Keener is addressing. These women in this culture had no rights. They had no voice in society and especially no voice with their husbands. The man was the head of the household and the women uh, would be considered people with low standing in society. Remember last week how I talked about the different structures of society? And so women were seen as lowly people. They felt, now listen to this, again, don't, like, don't shoot me. We're pacifists anyway, so no one brought a gun. They felt that women were too emotional And therefore, because they're too emotional, they're not able to make wise decisions. And only men could keep their emotions in check and actually make wise decisions in order to run the household. Their wives were essentially like their slaves, there to serve certain purposes, predominantly within sexual nature. They were seen as property rather than partners like we would see them today. So it's absolutely crazy that Peter is telling Christian wives to accept the authority of their unsaved husbands. It's crazy. And that they were now seen, because the Christian church was now seeing them as free and equal. Remember Galatians chapter 3, Paul teaches this in verse 28. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. There's this oneness that's happening in the Christian church. And Jesus invites everyone equally to the table of salvation. 
We're all one. This is how these women would have seen their freedom in Christ. And so it's crazy that Peter is advising them to accept their husband's authority. Because what was happening is they were coming home and saying, I'm not putting up with this. I don't have to live with this anymore. I'm free in Christ. But remember Peter's concern. You got to remember this as you're reading the text. That this Christian wife would be able to influence her unsaved husband, the text says, to be won over. How? Through watching how his wife lives her life with him. Would you like me to explain more? Because we could just go to prayer. It'd be fine. You see, if a man's wife were to inform her pagan husband that she is now free and equal, it would be devastating to the household. It would cause all kinds of social problems, and she would be considered an atheist and rebellious against her husband, and it would create persecution and cause all kinds of problems in the home, and her Christian witness would be gone. See, women had no influence over their husbands. She would have just been disciplined and ignored and lost Peter's main concern. This husband seeing Christ through this Christian woman. The only way for that to happen is through the wife respecting her husband's authority. Now listen to what it says. By living a pure and reverent life. This is an interesting statement that Peter continues to unpack. Most wives found their self-worth and their husband's eye by worrying about their outward appearance. Has culture changed? Steve said it. (laughs) Wives would doll themselves up with fancy hairstyles, jewelry, and clothes. This was the normal way to get noticed by your husband. Now remember, women were considered sex objects. So give him what he wants and make sure you look good. But listen to what Peter says about this approach. In verses 3 to 4, he says, Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from Within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. Now, I want to address something. Many pastors in the past saw this passage as a command for women to live simple and not wear fancy clothes. And our denomination, as Mennonites, is extremely guilty of that where we read this saying that it's a command to not wear jewelry. It's a command to dress simply. It's a command to do these things that Peter says. That is totally reading this passage out of its context. Peter would look at you cross-eyed and go, what are you talking about? That's not what I'm saying. You see, he's telling these Christian women to find their self-worth 
in their identity in Christ. The book flows. It works with itself, right? So if our interpretation moves outside of the flow of the book or outside of the nature of Jesus, we got to go back to the drawing board. What's he been focusing on? Our identity in Christ. And so he's saying to these ladies, don't find your identity in those things, not in material things, because these material, this material beauty doesn't show Christ to your husband, because that's his main concern. It just drives the broken culture of the time. Instead, Peter says, find beauty in being gentle and have a quiet spirit. Now, that would insinuate that these dolled-up ladies did not have that as their character. Folks, this is so countercultural. It isn't even funny what Peter is saying here. The best way to your husband's heart is not your physical beauty, because that's the norm of the day. It's your beauty within. It's your heart that will influence your unbelieving husband. And Craig Keener touched on that at the end of what I read you, didn't he? Not your clothes or rebelling against him. Let's read a little bit more from Mr. Keener. He said, ancients, so at this time in first century Greco-Roman culture, ancients considered a meek and quiet spirit a prime virtue for women. And many moralists advise this attitude instead of dressing in the latest fashions to attract men's attention, a vice commonly attributed to aristocratic women, but imitated by those who could afford to do so. So what was the poor woman to do? You see, the norm of society for women was to dress to be noticed, yet a meek and quiet spirit was actually what would attract the husband's attention. This is this thing about, are you going to blend and just be like the culture? Or are you going to live within the culture but be different? This is why, folks, Peter's giving this instruction. The women will have more influence and be a better witness if they take a posture of accepting the authority of their husbands and live with a meek and quiet spirit. This will have more effect on your husband and keep you from being persecuted. He says, trust God. Trust that he will guide you through your behaviors. Don't try to be noticed just like don't, don't try to be noticed in the, the, the clothing and the fancy hairstyles and all that kind of stuff. Instead, be like Christ and you'll be noticed more. Now, we need to bridge this cultural gap. Because how many people are like, okay, like I see some of this culture in our culture, but how do we, how do, we do this? Well, now that we know the cultural context of this passage, let's start working on how do we apply it in our culture today. We haven't even got to verse 7 yet. There's a hint there. It's this piece that gets challenging in the Christian church, and it's why we have so many different opinions that surround texts like this. I'm lucky, though, because I didn't grow up in the Christian church, and so I don't have all these preconceived crazy teachings that aren't scriptural. All they did was study the Bible and its context. 
And so I'm kind of lucky here, except verses like this, when I hear interpretations of it, I'm like all cross-eyed and weirded out going, what are you talking about? I've never seen Jesus do that. So this bridging of the gap is really difficult, and it's where the church has gone terribly wrong in our culture today. You see, many see this passage as a weapon to call on wives to submit to their husbands, to dress modestly, and to sit and be quiet. Folks, I don't mean to be hard on you, but this is a really elementary understanding of an amazing passage. He wants wives with unbelieving husbands to witness to their husbands so they can find life in Jesus. That's the context of this passage. And he uses the current culture to his advantage. Affect your husband by being different, not in a diverse way, but a submissive way. Because submission is countercultural in all cultures, including today. Win your husband over to Christ by living like Jesus, loving him by honoring him, not tempting him. The context of this passage is not a lesson on how two married Christians should live. That instruction comes when Peter addresses the husbands. The Christian church, folks, believes in equality. Galatians shows us this, and verse 7 shows it as well. Scripture establishes in Genesis, so now let's go back to the beginning, and I'm going to clear some things up for you. It establishes in Genesis an equality between genders. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, some of your other translations, like the King James translation, the English Standard Version translation, they would translate human as man. All human beings are created in the image of God, male and female. That's what the text says. But why do some of our versions translate it as man? The Hebrew word was Adam. 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 But in the early Genesis text, Adam means humanity. It is not gender-based. It means all of humanity. You cannot translate that word as man. So the NLT gets it right. The NIV gets it right. So God created human beings... In his own image, male and female, he created them. So if both men and women are image bearers of God, it means God created us differently on purpose so that combined we can reflect the image of God. To take the approach to say man affects the image of God is eliminating what the creation story is actually teaching. Man and female, male and female combined, the different genders is what shows us the image of God. So in order to know the image of God, you have to look at the nature of both men and women. 
If you omit one or heighten one over the other, you miss the point of how God uses the diversity of two genders to show us who he is. God's genderless. And this was a radical shift that we see happen at Pentecost. The Christians returned to the biblical understanding of creation. So so where on earth did our man over woman mindset come from? Roman pagan culture. How did this happen? How did Roman pagan culture infiltrate the church and made everybody see it as biblical? Simple. Look at church history. Constantine, the Roman emperor, claims to get saved and implements Roman culture into the church, and the church becomes the mainstream religion of the world. The early church, folks, never saw it that way. Do you know how we know this? Look at Jesus. How did Jesus interact with women? Did Jesus, if we look at it this way, in our context of our denomination, we've been looking at everything in the context of being welcomed to the table. The Christianity is all about being welcomed to the table. And the radical nature of Christianity is that Jesus welcomed everyone equally to the table. That's Galatians. There is no Gentile, there is no Jew, there is no male, there is no female, there's only oneness in Christ. You're all welcome to the table. The minute we omit somebody from the table, we're not seeing the image of God. And Jesus functioned that way. Roman pagan culture was hierarchical, higher, yeah, that word, and it separated the genders into classes. The early church believed in equality because of how Jesus interacted with women and his teachings from creation. We have a lot of evidence. I'd love to teach a whole Bible study on this. Maybe someday I'll get Tamil to do it for me. (laughs) Of how Jesus looked at the Genesis account. It's very different than how we often teach it. The early church believed in equality because of how Jesus interacted with women. Just read the Gospels, you'll see it. It'll be glaring right in front of your eyes. It was later in church history that we readopted the pagan hierarchical culture again. So in today's culture, what Peter teaches still applies. The context of living a pure and reverent life in order to win someone over. The rest of the passage moves into our culture today where wives are seen or should be seen as equal to husbands. Where we're called to mutually submit to one another out of our love for Christ. I did a teaching on Paul's household codes in Ephesians chapter 5. You can go find that online. It's by far our most popular teaching and it's the one I got the most emails from. Both positive and not positive. But it's interesting when I have colleagues that come and are, when the reformed camp of Christianity comes and argues with me. Because the non-reformed doesn't argue about this. It's just the reformed camp. 
And it's interesting because I say, like, you, you quote culture in all your different ways of interpreting scripture until we get to this one, and then you leave culture out of it. How? How? There's a way that we do hermeneutics. It's called a redemptive movement hermeneutic. It's what our denomination would actually use. There's a guy named uh, Bill Webb. He's a professor at Tyndale Seminary. He used to be a professor at Heritage Seminary, which is a staunch Baptist school, and they fired him because of this book. And the book is called, I think it's called Sex, Slaves, and Homosexuals, or Sex, Women, Slaves, and Homosexuals, something along those. And he talks about how culture redemptively moves as we work through Bible interpretation. In other words, how do we take this context and redemptively, through the lens of redemption, the cross, and how do we move it into our cultural context today? Well, Peter does that for us, actually, in this text. Because in verse 7, he's addressing what a Christian household should actually look like. He's doing it specifically through husbands. But this is now, he's going from addressing a wife who is saved, a husband who is not, to two Christians married with one another. He says, in the same way, there it is, you husbands must honor must give honor to your wives, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. The minute you don't treat each other as equal in Christ, your prayers will be hindered. This gives us an image of how Christian marriage functions. Peter shifts in his teachings distinctly here. Now, the weaker statement, okay, we can get upset about that, and I know that there is cultural things, but the, all he's simply saying is, is he's pointing out at dealing with the difference in physical stature. Now, I've, I've met some of the MMA women fighters, and they would smoke my butt. Like, I get that, and so this doesn't always work. But contextually, that's all he's talking about, is in our culture, man is stronger than woman, physically meaning they're naturally stronger than women, but it doesn't make men superior. Men aren't supposed to use that strength. They're supposed to use equality. And Peter says that we're equal partners in a Christian context, which is very countercultural to pagan, Roman, culture. So how do we apply this today? How do we do this? It's simple. Live like Jesus. Follow his example. Peter's said all of this already, hasn't he? Watch how you live and how you treat one another. Don't lose your witness. You see, Jesus brought women into the inner circle because he saw them as equal in God's image. In order to fully see God, you have to look at both genders. And in Christian relationships, mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, the scriptures say. Live in a way that affects your partner and helps them to see Jesus through you. Folks, that's part of my testimony. When I met Carrie... I was not a Christian. And to be quite frank, her friends said, get away from this crazy guy. 
Fair enough, I get it. And she didn't date me right away. She put up boundaries. She did all of the right things as a good Christian girl. But you want to know what actually affected me the most about Carrie? Was the time that I, the one time that I got to go into her room. She was living with a family friend. And I know, I know, like, woo, like a boyfriend in the room. I wasn't her boyfriend at this point. We were just friends. I was trying desperately to be her boyfriend. But she wouldn't have that which was very odd to me. And I saw her Bible sitting on her dresser. I was just up there very shortly, and she had been in it. And I, I, so I grabbed it off of the dresser, and I opened it up, and it was an NIV student Bible. And it was this ratted-up disaster. She had writing all around the margins. She had, like, bulletins inserted in with sermon notes and all this stuff. And do you know what that caused me to think? She's actually living what she keeps telling me. And so when we parted ways to go home for the summer and we're just friends and we're kind of distancing ourselves from one another, I thought before I write off this girl, I should probably read this book she keeps talking about. The book that she interacts with so much. And if you know my wife, she's changed over time. She's a little spunkier. I'm kidding. My wife lives what this passage says. She lives a life that brings witness because she's gentle. She's loving. And she lives like Christ. That's this passage in action, folks. That's what Peter's talking about. Why have we turned it into something that hinders witness when it's this beautiful thing that helps us bring people to Christ? When the world sees chapter 7 in action, a husband who makes his wife equal a husband and wife who mutually submit to one another, it brings witness to the world. So be willing to submit to one another. Stop trying to push being right. Instead, do life together and let Jesus lead your decisions as we place our trust in him. There's no place for anyone to be above anyone if you believe that Christ is our example. Instead, make sure you're living a life that witnesses Jesus to others. And we're going to have to play this balancing act of what we rebel against and what we just live into. But the overarching theme of the gospel is to share the good news with the world. And we have missed that thrust in Scripture. As we turn to reflecting on the cross this morning through communion, the worship team can join me. Ask yourself this. Is my life witnessing Jesus to the world? Is my relationship with my spouse 
witnessing Jesus to the world.